I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Joel Parker. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, February 2nd, 2016. Coming up, winter stargazing in Boulder open space and mountain parks. And entomologist Jonathan Lundgren will discuss how predator insects can play a key role in nature's pest controls and how he has faced political pressure for researching and speaking about the negative effects of certain insecticides on pollinators. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. A landmark study has revealed that a person's risk of schizophrenia is increased if she inherits specific variants in a gene related to what's called synaptic pruning. That's the elimination of connections between neurons. The study was based on genetic analysis of nearly 65,000 people. That's big. The findings represent the first time that the origin of this devastating psychiatric disease has been directly linked to specific gene variants and a biological process. The research helps explain decades-old observations. Synaptic pruning is particularly active during adolescence, which is typically when symptoms of schizophrenia start showing themselves. And it's also when brains of schizophrenic patients tend to show fewer connections between neurons. The gene associated with synaptic pruning is called complement component 4, or C4. It plays a well-known role in the immune system, but has now been shown also to significantly influence brain development and schizophrenia risk. The discovery may help future therapeutic strategies to be directed at the root of schizophrenia rather than just its symptoms. The study was published last week in the journal Nature. So if you knew you had a disease-causing gene, wouldn't it be great if you could just turn it off? Turns out you can by injecting short pieces of DNA that bind to the molecules which express the genetic messages. This approach, called antisense, has made it possible to turn off or turn down many genes, creating a whole new drug industry. One of these drugs, mypomersin, interferes with the synthesis of the main protein component of the so-called bad cholesterol, LDL. However, the mechanism that reduced the blood level of LDL was not understood. Last week, scientists reported in the journal Science and Translational Medicine experiments with both human volunteers and mice that clarified the mechanism of mypomersin. Interestingly, the production of the proteins by the liver is not affected. Instead, the proteins, which actually carry cholesterol in the blood, LDL and its very low-density cousin VLDL, are selectively eliminated. This is good news because it means mypomersin reduces the risk of liver damage due to buildup of the fatty proteins. And here's some good news to buck the trend of a shrinking publishing industry. A new magazine devoted to anthropological science just launched last week. It's called Sapiens and it's editorially based at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. Chip Colwell, the curator of anthropology at the museum, is the editor-in-chief of the online publication, whose articles and blogs are written by academics and journalists. The journal, which covers biological anthropology and archaeology, is funded by the Wintergren Foundation. Check it out at sapiens.org and learn about, well, us, Homo sapiens. And on this day, 46 years ago in 1970, 
Bertrand Russell, a famous British philosopher, logician, mathematician, historian, writer, social critic, and political activist, died at the age of 98. He is considered one of the founders of analytic philosophy, along with his protege, Ludwig Wittgenstein, and others. Along with Ian Whitehead, he wrote Principia Mathematica, which was an attempt to create a logical basis for mathematics. Russell's work had a dramatic influence on the fields of logic, math, set theory, linguistics, artificial intelligence, cognitive science, computer science, philosophy, and more. He was born into one of the most prominent aristocratic families in Britain, but despite his apparent silver spoon, he was hardly a slacker. In the early 20th century, Russell led the British so-called revolt against idealism. Reach for the sky. You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. This Saturday night, you can join Boulder Open Space and Mountain Parks interpretive naturalist Dave Sutherland out on the trails for winter stargazing. Dave will bring along a very large telescope that you can gaze through, as some evening hikers did recently out near Boulder Valley Ranch. Up next... How on Earth's Shelley Schlender brings you a soundscape with KGNU DJ Fergus Stone on the banjo. Thank you, Fergus. And David Sutherland out near Boulder Valley Ranch with his big telescope showing nighttime hikers our amazing stars. We live in a galaxy called the Milky Way. It's a vast city of stars. We think the Milky Way galaxy maybe has somewhere on the order of two to three hundred billion stars. That's so many stars that every person who lives in the United States could have a thousand of their very own. And that's just the Milky Way galaxy that we live in. This is an 11-inch Celestron reflecting telescope. And for people who can't see it, it's taller than I am, and it weighs about 100 pounds when it's all set up like this. The mirror at the bottom is 11 inches across, so that's sort of the equivalent of if your eye could be 11 inches across. So it's sort of like a, a great big net for scooping up light and focusing it. It's really quiet out here. Sometimes we hear coyotes howling. We've heard great horned owls out here at night doing telescope programs. Sometimes you can hear the cars far away on the highway, but just as a distant whispering. So normally it's just really, really quiet. Hi there. You guys are welcome to come look through it if you want and show you some stuff. Oh, my telescope? goodness, yeah. no kidding. Yeah, yeah I think I've got the star Sirius, which is that really, really bright one. Take a look at that. 
Wow, right what there. A tree. Yeah, that's the brightest star in the sky. Huh. Let me see, where's this? Seriously. Where do I look oh, at? Look in right here. Just put your eye right up here. Turn it down a little bit. Cirrus is which star? How close to us? Well, I mean, that um, one ever is. It's about it? nine light years away. It's one of our very, very nearest neighbors. Okay, because uh, what is it? Uh, Alpha Centauri is like closest? Or? It's closest, but Sirius is only about twice as far as Alpha Centauri. So it's it's nine, really nine in our neighborhood. It's, it's, you know, like the neighbor across the street and down the block. <laughs> right. it's, it's a double star, and its companion is a tiny little white dwarf star. So cool. But the way white dwarfs are made is big stars start out, burn up all of their yeah. hydrogen, turn into a red giant, and then puff their gas off and become a red dwarf. So uh-huh. the little, uh, white dwarf, so the little white dwarf next to Sirius tells us once upon a time it was a double star that had a companion that was even bigger than it is. Very cool. Can I take a look through the... Absolutely. Where am I looking? I want to pump right, the uh, Right here. Scope. Yeah, you can't really... It's heavy and you oh, can't it's heavy, really okay. it. So see, just um, look right into where my hands are. Oh, yeah. Is that the third... Let's see. Gosh, it's... Yeah, the belt is the yeah. three three bright stars. That... They're aligned perfectly, right? Right. Which is yeah. the middle one, right? Yes, that's it. Go. Yeah. Oh, man. Uh-huh. Yeah. Tonight you can see the yeah. stars. And then you hear the coyotes in the background. right in there. So it's a huge cloud of gas that's filled with maybe, oh, I don't know, a thousand or more new baby stars that are just forming, including the very, very bright stars right in the center that are much, much bigger, brighter, and hotter than the sun. Oh, fantastic. Thanks to Shelley Schlender for that report. Dave Sutherland will be out with his telescope this Saturday night and next week. Then on February 12th, the Boulder Philharmonic will be performing a new composition about stars. For more about the star hikes, go to naturehikes.org. For more about the concert, check out boulderphil.org. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. Although we don't hear them buzzing and crackling in our gardens or crop fields nowadays in the chill of winter... Crickets, bees, and thousands of other insects play a critical role year-round in how we grow the food we eat. Our guest today, Dr. Jonathan Lundgren, is an entomologist. That's a bug guy. For many years, with the Department of Agriculture, and more recently on a research and educational farm he runs, he spent most of his days studying the relationships between insects, soil, and crops. He's on a lofty mission to transform, or perhaps restore, the way we produce food into one that is healthier for the environment and for our health. Dr. Lundgren's research has also shown adverse effects of some commonly used insecticides called neonicotinoids on pollinators such as honeybees and monarch butterflies, whose populations have been plunging. Some of his research has become controversial, as we'll discuss later in the show. Dr. Lundgren joins us on the phone from Brookings, South Dakota. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me, Susan. Glad you could make it and not have to come through the snowstorm we've had here. (laughs) We have our own little smattering of snow up here. It's uh, never a dull moment. I bet you do. It's more infrastructure there, probably. So, um, (laughs) as I mentioned in the intro, it's awfully quiet in the dead of winter with a foot or so of snow here. But who and where are some of the insects you're studying? And it's obviously not just in the harvest time and growing season, right? That's right. Nope. They're living under the snow right now, getting ready to wake up as as soon as uh, spring thaw comes. 
And there's a lot of species out there um, that are doing just that right now. I think that we often think of biodiversity as happening someplace else, but there's a lot of biodiversity right here in North America, and it's doing great things for us. And particularly when we're talking about, as you research, the use of predator insects as biological pest controls. What, what kind of insects are those? But let's start with the predators. The guys who eat yeah, them, so things things like ants and lady beetles and spiders and centipedes and really, I mean, there is a, literally thousands of species of these things that are living in and around us and trying to do good work. I mean, that's nature's pesticides, right there, right? Yeah, and so what? What's an example of the good work? You know, by eating the so-called bad guys, at least from a food production standpoint. What's a that's right. What's so, a predator-prey relationship there? That that is really interesting to you. Well, it's, uh, they, these, these predators are eating a lot of our crop pests. If we just get out of the way and let them do their jobs, I mean, we don't often see insect outbreaks within natural systems, right? Well, rarely and occasionally we do as, as, as plant communities need to be regulated. Those herbivores will kind of come in and go a little bit crazy. But the natural enemy communities of those herbivores are really important in, in making sure that there's a balance of species out there. And our research is showing that it's not necessarily just a couple of predators that are the important ones. Oftentimes, it's the community itself and the diversity and the balance of species within that community that really regulates an herbivore population or so, a pest population. So let's say now so we're having locust outbreak in some places. What, what can you point to that, if not as the actual cause, but if it is a partly biodiversity out of balance? Right. So uh, grasshoppers are great. We often think of what forces shaped, you know, the grasslands uh, back in the day. And we think of the large ruminants, the bison herds and things like that. Grasshoppers? Grasshoppers were a force in nature, man. I mean, these <laughs> things were really influential as far as regulating plant communities. And um, and so, but they also, uh, you know, aggregate a large uh, community of natural enemies. So things like birds, things like uh, blister beetles are really important predators of, of grasshopper eggs. And crickets are really important predators of grasshopper eggs. And so it, it gets down to a balance of species that can regulate, you know, those outbreak, you know, populations. And... Statistically, are we seeing more, not just small-scale organic growers, but even larger-scale growers using more, at least, integrated pest management or some kind of hybrid conventional and biological pest controls? Like, what, what is the trend now? Well, I think that there's that, that that there is a growing. It's still a minority, but there's a growing proportion of farmers that are realizing that soil health, and as you start to restore soil health in and, on, in and on their farms, that this is having myriad benefits, including pest management. And by regenerating, you know, soil health, and, and by soil health I'm talking about, you know, soil organic matter, biodiversity in the soil, and bringing life matter just back for... into the farm. And, and by you organic know? matter you're talking about sort of the breakdown of all the plant itself right? exactly exactly and just getting life back into their farms mm. that these guys are real are coming to, to, the, to the conclusion that they don't need the input costs that they used to as, as far as 
as far as insecticide management and for sure and they're being able to farm more profitably but what's so interesting is that these guys are doing things with no-till and cover crops and plant diversity on their farms that oftentimes the science says can't happen and so there's this real disconnect between the science that's supporting the current paradigm of food production which is real monoculture and simplified you know focused um, uh, there's a real disconnect between the science and, and what producers are capable of. And so we we really want to bridge that gap, and that's what I'm trying to do with this Blue Dasher Farm initiative. And tell me more about the initiative. Well, we want a center of excellence uh, or a network of, of centers for excellence in, in regenerative agriculture where we're using biodiversity as a tool on farms to help to help you know, increase soil soil quality, increase biodiversity, and increase nutrient density as a food, all while making the farmer more pro, uh, profitable at the same time. It sounds kind of lofty, but you have to realize that there's a lot of producers that are already doing this. And so it's taking what they're doing so right and making it transferable and scalable to as many operations as possible. And there are different places like the Land Institute, certainly Rodale in Pennsylvania, that have been looking at this for decades. What, what, what are you doing that's different at Blue Dasher Farm? And I know this is quite new. Right. Yes, this is very new. Um, we are focusing on practical tools that farmers can use. Um, this is not an organic um, situation, um, and it's also not focused entirely on perennials. I think that there's a middle ground in there that we can, that we can really appeal to. Is it in line with some of these ideas that some of these other, um, you know, research farms and independent research farms are, 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 are focused on? Yeah, I think that there's some, a lot of similarities and there's the ways that we can grow together. But at the same time, um, you know, this is farmer-focused, farmer farmer-driven, beekeeper-driven, and, um, and, and really kind of from a practical standpoint of how do we get – how do we go from just, you know, the ideas to the practical applications of these things? And when you say it's not about just organic, is it that that's not practical on a larger scale and or it's not necessarily the healthiest all the time? That it sounds like it's critical to have some kind of hybrid. Yeah, I think that I think you're absolutely right. Organic limits the amount of tools that you have in order to um, in order to maintain your system because uh, you're not allowed to use pesticides. And we're not anti-pesticides, um, and we're not really anti-GM. But what we are is we're finding that as we restore soil health and focusing on those goals, those endpoints, rather than the practices needed to get to those endpoints, so that we can eliminate a lot of our input costs in terms of pesticide use. So, so simply a bit from a business perspective, that makes a lot of sense. And on the pesticide front, your research on chemical pesticides, namely this category called neonicotinoids, mm -hmm. uh, neurotoxins, namely glyphosate, has run into a lot of political pressure from your employer, the U.S. Department of Agriculture. What, what's behind this from your perspective? Um, well, I think there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of fear. I mean, this is, this is a, there's a lot of, there's a lot of momentum in using these neonicotinoids. There isn't a lot of science to support their use, but it's, I mean, there's literally billions of dollars at stake. And, and, and 13% of the terrestrial land surface of our 
of our country is treated with neonicotinoids that don't seem to be helping a lot of the farmers, most of the farmers. So, and so it really begs the question of, of whether or not we need to be going this route. Who's driving the bus here? And and what's the best way forward, I guess. And 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 so our, our research was showing that there's unintended environmental effects of neonicotinoid seed treatments. And and that was politically um, very very inconvenient data. And so it was it was suppressed as a result of that. And there's just no way forward for us if if we cannot allow our scientists to speak freely and openly about their scientific data and have the discourses that we need in order to advance. So so I know um, this is an ongoing investigation, but you're saying from your perspective that it was just your ongoing research showing increasingly the negative effects on pollinators of neonicotinoids that has drawn ire and, and backlash from USDA? Yes. We, we, we filed an official whistleblower retaliation complaint um, as a result of some of the treatment that we've been experiencing following the publicizing of some of our research on neonics as well as on RNAi, which is a form of genetic pesticide. Um, and, and yeah, so that's where that's at. And that is our assertion, and, and so, yeah, that's well backed up. If we had found that neonics didn't kill monarchs, that was one of the studies that really um, sealed the deal for, for my career trajectory with USDA. We found that neonics were hurting monarch butterflies, or could be hurting them. Um, and, that and, and that conclusion led to what? Um, suspensions. Um, they told me that I was not allowed to, or that I had not had approval to submit the paper after they had already told me that I did. Just a, a bunch of games ensued. And, and, uh, and yeah, so it, it became very clear that if I had, <laughs> if I had just found that monarchs weren't being killed by neonics, I don't think I would be in the same problem. Boy, and I know USDA is not here to speak, but what's its um, justification? Um, You really would have to ask them on that. Uh, I I can't fathom. I can't fathom. Well, and it's interesting that you're not the first. I mean, back in 2012, some beekeeper organizations filed suit against the EPA. There's been some suppression of researchers at UC UC, uh, Berkeley, right? Yeah. No, there is this is I'm I'm in this situation because there are many before me that have gone through the same thing and they didn't stand up. And so enough was enough. Um this is ongoing. There are numerous federal scientists, especially pollinator focused, that are that are experiencing similar things and if we question the current paradigm in terms of food production um that is oftentimes chemically uh supported by agrochemicals, you know, um that that lands us in a lot more hot water than it ought to. We need to be asking these questions. The taxpayers are paying for the research. They deserve to hear the answers. Well, there's plenty more to cover on this topic, but that's it for now. That was Dr. Jonathan Lundgren, an entomologist who studies the role that insects can play as nature's pest controls and help farmers use less damaging insecticides. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me.
that's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker, who also produced and engineered today's show. Additional contributions from Shelley Schlender and Beth Bennett. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Fergus Stone and the duo Miles and Katrina. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KJNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KJNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran.